I ought to acknowledge that the Epistemy Project involved quite a team of us from the STEM Education Group um, in Cambridge. So let me mention um, Christine Howe, um, who had a particular interest in, in group work. Um, Neil Mercer, a colleague who is particularly interested in notions of dialogic teaching and classroom interaction. Keith Tabor, who is a science educator. And I said to Gabriel that we had, it was a five-year project, so there was quite a lot of coming and going of people who worked with us as researchers. But um, the person that worked with us throughout as a research officer was um, Rika Hoffman. So in particular, those other people have played you know, as much of a part as me in the work that I'm going to describe. Um, I'm going to try and keep to what was the suggested timing. So I'm going to try and um, draw to a, a change of mode of discussion <laughs> at 10.2 um, to give a chance for sort of questions and, and, and discussion. However, um, because there's a lot to talk about, um, as I shall explain, if you feel that I've missed out something important or you have a question to ask, I'm very happy to sort of take that as we're going along because I'd rather deal with, you know, the nagging uncertainty or doubt in your mind at the time it, that it occurs rather than leaving you to, to wait until 10.2 to be able to, to, to ask it. Um, so, essentially, the, the plan of action is I'm going to say a little bit about the, the background to the, the project. I'm going to talk about key prior research on maths and science teaching that influenced our work. I'm then going to talk about the intervention that we designed in Epistemy and the aspects of that that are described on the slide. I'm then going to just give a flyover of the results from the field trial that we uh, conducted and in particular focusing on just, not just the evaluation of the intervention itself but what we found out about dialogic teaching. And then I'm going to uh, try and make some sense of that and fit it into the the bigger picture. So that's the plan of action. I hope to get through that by, by 10.2. Um, but as I say, if I miss out things important, you'll, you'll, you'll tell me. If you think about it, there has been now a good 50 years of research on maths and science education. I kind of date uh, the start of research in maths and science education on any scale back to the 1960s. That's, for example, when you know, the, the oldest journals were founded, and it was the period when there were, uh, in the following on from the OECD's interest in changing curriculum, there were a lot of curriculum development projects which spawned the notion that actually you needed to carry out research in science and maths education in order to do good and intelligent curriculum uh, design and, and development. So over those 50 years, there's been a lot of work done, and so we ought to know something now about effective teaching in maths and science education. And around the turn of the century, people in various developed countries have uh, turned their minds to trying to take stock of that. Um, so particularly in the United States, there have been quite a lot of um, initiatives, uh, in particular by the National Research Council, to try and synthesize what we know about effective maths teaching and effective science teaching. And in this country, we sort of got round to it through an initiative um, led by the ESRC, but with support from organisations including the Institute of Physics, the Association of Science Education, the Gatsby um, Foundation, 
to look at um, you know, what our current research-based knowledge was to inform efforts to increase young people's levels of participation and attainment in maths and science education, but also to extend that knowledge. And so the TISME initiative, as it was called, um, was launched round about 2007-2008 and held its final conference um, last week um, in 2014. So you can see it's been quite a sort of long-standing effort. And in particular, there have been five research projects that were funded as part of that initiative. And the Epistemy Project is one of those. And its particular focus has been on research-based pedagogical development um, across mathematics and science aimed at improving pupil engagement and learning. And that's what I'm going to be talking about today. So what's the key prior research? I'm going to single out four areas of research that I think for us were were key. So first of all, um, just before Epistemy got going, there were reported three you know, it's like, you know, buses, you suddenly wait around and then three meta-analyses specific to maths and science education all come along at once. Um, the first one by Seidel and Shavelson was across mathematics and science, which I, in my view is, makes it quite useful. And the other thing that's quite useful about it is it looks not just to outcomes in terms of student attainment, but to outcomes in terms of student attitude, um, which... Uh, seems to be that there's often too much attention to attainment and not enough to attitude, and it's good to have a study that um, looks at both. And they conceptualise teaching in terms of what they call teaching components rather than a sort of overarching teaching style or anything, and what they were trying to do was to find out the relative effectiveness of these components. Um, two studies more specific in their subject focus, a subject of teaching strategies in science, and so this was a, a solely American meta-analysis in that it restricted itself to work that had taken place in the United States, whereas Seidel and Shavelson ranged much more broadly. And then uh, a study of teaching programmes in, in, in maths by Bob Slavin and colleagues. Uh, two separate studies, one at elementary school level, one at middle and high school um, level, focusing on, by teaching programmes, it divided them into three types. Uh, curriculum programmes, um, computer-based learning programs and what they called instructional development programs, um, which are actually the most interesting ones because they are the ones that actually involve teacher development as well. And I did some work trying to triangulate across these three meta-analyses, and it was fairly clear that there were four particularly effective teaching approaches identified across these studies. Um, Drawing on the language used in these studies, the first of these was domain-specific inquiry, which is essentially um, inquiry organised around problem-solving with an emphasis on key disciplinary concepts and authentic disciplinary tasks. Cooperative group work, which covers quite a range from uh, teamwork approaches to study to discussion-based approaches to, to learning mathematics and science. The next one, enhanced context, only came out of the science education um, studies. And this was about teaching approaches which pay particular attention to students' interests and enthusiasms or to the, the local context in which the teaching is taking place. Uh, but in that study, it was found to be very highly effective. And then the last one, 
goes back to the process product research carried out in the 1970s and 1980s, which found in mathematics, really only in mathematics was this research done, found it was very effective um, in essentially teaching you know, more basic skills than, than conceptual mathematics, um, active teaching, direct instruction. So that was one component. The next important component, because we were working in England, was the research synthesis which lay behind the teaching approach promoted by the national strategies, which, as you know, prioritised whole class interactive teaching. And where that came from, if you read um, not just the final report of the working group, but the review of research produced to support it, was primarily from this American process product um, research. And it corresponds pretty much to the active teaching direct instruction um, model. At the same time, the review of research even then acknowledged that, I'm quoting, additional classroom processes were necessary to enhance higher order thinking. And effectively, what it was saying was that um, beyond whole class interactive teaching, you'd need to do things equivalent to domain-specific inquiry and cooperative group work if you want to develop that higher order thinking um, in mathematics, well, primarily in mathematics, but of course it was also extended to science. Another important body of work is by the epicentre. And those of you who know the epicentre will be aware that they consult users, both in the policy community and in the practitioner community, around what are key topics to be researched. And the studies that they did in maths and science education um, had a particular focus on issues of classroom interaction and dialogue um, so that in maths, for example, there was a work on effective teacher-initiated teacher-pupil dialogue. And in science, there was a succession of studies on group discussion in science, different aspects of that. So in all of that research, an important focus was on classroom dialogue and on dialogic teaching. And in particular, two members of our team, um, Neil Basser and Christine Howe, had been involved in research which had identified the value of discussion in encouraging people to talk in a more exploratory way and to take account of different points of view. Uh, in particular, the Thinking Together programme that Neil Mercer, with colleagues at the Open University, um, developed over a number of years, and which had been... Um, some work had been done in, in science and mathematics education. The other work, I think, that was important for us um, was Phil Scott's work with colleagues on dimensions of classroom discourse. And effectively what he says is there's a kind of weak and a strong notion of discourse in science classrooms. Obviously, the weaker notion is when there is exchange of talk which takes account of what other speakers are saying. Um, and he talks about that in terms of whether talk is interactive or non-interactive. But the stronger form of dialogic talk is where account is taken, the talk is framed in terms of there not being an authoritative um, set of ideas which are being referred to so that the discussion is more open and everybody, if you like, is on an equal footing in terms of their ideas and that different ideas need to be considered. And Phil Scott argues that, of course, authoritative talk plays a very important part in science teaching, as indeed it does in maths teaching. Um, 
essentially one of the roles of maths and science teaching is to induct young people into quite complex sets of ideas where actually interacting with an expert who talks about them it, 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 on some occasions in a way which is framed with, around the notion that there is an authoritative received way of thinking about this within the field which has reasoning behind it which you know the, the, the expert will explain to you that's an important part of maths and science teaching but I think Phil Scott's main contribution is to make a very strong case for the value of another kind of talk in maths and science classrooms, which is around this more dialogic framing, where effectively people think through, pursue through the logic of the way that, that, that they, they currently understand a topic. And in particular, students are given the opportunity to do that. So that was very influential on the epistemic pedagogical model, which I think I'll describe really in terms of these two elements. First, uh, it was based on the idea of a cycle of phases, and in particular, the exploration phase was the phase in which dialogic teaching played a, a, a central part, uh, because that was organised around uh, carefully crafted problem situations, which effectively students were invited uh, to tackle and come up with ideas about solutions for these problems. And during that phase, the role of the, the teacher is much more one of supporting the student inquiry and articulation of their thinking. Um, the teacher is definitely at that stage not taking an authoritative role in relation to the ideas being developed. That comes later. That comes in the next phase, which is a codification phase, where the ideas that have been explored, both in small group and whole class discussion, are then taken by the teacher and related to the accepted ways within contemporary mathematics and science of thinking about um, those ideas. And there, of course, the teacher has to take on a more authoritative role. But what they're able to do is they're able to draw on the student thinking that's been elicited during the exploration phase to help make the connections between the students' ideas, the students' ways of talking, arguing and thinking, and the accepted ways within the discipline. And then lastly, there's the important but often underestimated element of consolidation, which is around taking those ideas that you've recently been introduced to and meeting them in different contexts, um, a degree of variation in terms of the way that these are presented and, and, and handled. So the idea was that um, these phases would uh, be used, and in particular, the important one for the dialogic teaching was the exploration phase, organised around these crafted problem situations, which um, we tried to focus on key disciplinary concepts. We wanted to appeal to shared pupil experiences and interests in choosing the situations. We tried to take account of what was known about uh, informal knowledge and thinking about the topics. We tried to set up some of the activities so that they would support deconstruction of common forms of fallacious reasoning about those topics. In some of the lessons, we also tried to make connections between mathematics and scientific ideas. Um, originally, um, we'd been qu quite optimistic about this. Um, I had, um, uh, you know, hoped that we might find um, schools where there was some interest in maths and science departments working um, together. Um, that perhaps proved a little bit optimistic um, for all sorts of reasons. I mean, often maths and science departments are not located close to one another. 
um, there's a lot of staff turnover, and particularly in the lower secondary school where we were working, um, often teachers are not subject specialists. And so in practice, um, that proved a little bit of a heady aspiration, but what we were able to do was to, um, working within mathematics or science, smuggle into each of the other subjects some elements of the, uh, the other one. Because one of the things we're trying to do was to encourage pupils to think of themselves as mathematicians or scientists through our, through our designs. We think of what we're doing as redesign research because um, we recognize that to develop something that can be implemented at scale, you have to take account of all sorts of uh, conditioning factors which are very important in the lives of teachers and schools and which, if you don't acknowledge those, are going to inhibit the take-up and the usability of uh, something that, that, that you develop. So in doing this, we worked very closely with, initially, with five schools, uh, teachers from five schools, to try and discipline, if you like, our um, ideas about what we wanted to do in teaching with what the teachers perceived as the, the kind of immovable objects of the school and the, and the classroom. Um, and I guess what we ended up doing was we ended up saying, well, you can't say that every object is immovable in the school or the classroom, but you have to actually decide which are the ones that do really do want to move and to shift and to work very hard to, to move and shift those. And I think the, the, the real one we chose was the patterns of classroom interaction um, in this exploratory phase and the inclusion of the exploratory phase. So that our intervention ended up um, being organised around really four elements uh, that are described here. An introductory module in which, which provided activities through which a teacher could work with a class to establish some of the norms and routines that are necessary for productive classroom discussion. This is something that's very often underestimated, um, but is absolutely crucial to getting particularly group work functioning effectively in, in, in classrooms. And um, indeed, this was a sort of central part of the realistic professional development that we offered. What we mean by realistic professional development is that we thought we could probably just about coax schools to let teachers out for two days and that we could plan for them to do some activities in school, in their own classroom, in between those two days. And so the way that that functioned was that the first of those days was around the introductory module, the idea of dialogic teaching and the forms of classroom organisation that would support that. And then they went away and undertook the introductory module with um, one of the, at least one of their classes. And then on the second day, they came back, talked about how that had gone, what the issues were that came up, and were then introduced to our topic modules, which were designed to be uh, sets of materials which would enable them to teach a topic using... Uh, these kinds, this kind of uh, pedagogical approach um, and provide the support in, in doing that. And originally our hope was that, um, you know, that that would, in a sense, provide a model that teachers and departments would then take on and be able to use if they wanted for other topics. But one of the things that we found was that... Um, the current state of school departments in terms of capacity to develop their own schemes of work and in particular to develop new materials and resources and forms of teaching is pretty stretched in most schools. So while undoubtedly there would be some schools that would be able to do this, 
in the majority of schools, um, we are more sceptical now as to whether this would be realistic. And the feedback we got from teachers was that they found our materials extremely valuable, but they'd find it difficult to actually produce these themselves, given the, the constraints that they were working within and the resources they had access to. That made it kind of quite important that our teaching materials also had what educative uh, teaching notes. Um, that's referring to the notion of educative curricular materials, curricular materials which are aimed not just at being good for student learning, but at actually supporting teacher learning as well and developing teacher knowledge. And if you go to the Epistobe um, website, you can download the teaching notes for each of our uh, modules. So that's the introductory module. And then in science, we have modules on electrical circuits and forces and proportional relations. And then in maths, on fractions, ratios and proportions and probability. Uh, and these are pitched at Year 7 classes. We chose Year 7 because it seemed um, a good place to work at students coming into secondary school expecting new norms to be established and therefore more amenable to working in new ways. Um, also, it's the furthest away from high-stakes uh, assessments and therefore perhaps teachers, students and indeed parents be more amenable to uh, something rather different at that stage. We'd been quite optimistic when we started. That was around the time that Key Stage 3 SATs were abolished and we kind of hoped that, that schools would be looking to do something a bit different uh, in Key Stage 3 and to you know, take advantage of the, the new freedoms. And I think, you know, while it's true that there, there were some schools thinking along those lines, we went into an awful lot of schools where they said, we don't know what we're going to do. I think we're going to have to buy in some of commercial tests to administer at the end of year nine. And uh, actually, we've, you know, we're, we're, we're going to do the same at the end of year seven and year eight. So that didn't free up things as much as we hoped it might across the system. But nevertheless, I think what we, we found was that there were sufficient schools around who were up for doing something different. And that was very important for us to be able to conduct our field trial. But before I tell you about the field trial, I'm going to just give you an illustrative dialogic activity to give you a bit more concrete sense of what that might look like. Um, so here's one that is around um, the idea that we have attached and detached earlobes. Uh, not many people know that, it seems, because when this lesson is taught, immediately students start looking around at each other and feeling their earlobes and, and, and so on. So it does engender a certain, a certain interest. And so the first part of the lesson is around establishing the idea of, you know, what are attached and detached earlobes and introducing the genetic model as to how that characteristic uh, is shaped and how, in particular, the, the, the genes that influence that are passed on from parents to children and how that is reflected in the kind of earlobes that someone has. Um, and then the students, having had a bit of a chance in the whole class to uh, get their mind around these ideas, um, in groups, in small groups, about four students tackle a problem. A um, couple expecting their first baby. Both parents have a mixed pairing of these alleles. How likely is their baby to have this same pairing? Now, an important ground rule in the group discussions introduced in the introductory module is that in a group, you should try and come to an agreement. You may not be able to come to an agreement, but you should try 
to come to an agreement. Because otherwise, the talk risks not being dialogic at all. Um, as people simply say, well, I don't agree with you, but I'm going to think in my own way, and so on. So that first part of the lesson is when the four students or so chew over this problem on their own, and they're developing ideas about that. And while the group may not come to um, an agreement, generally the group comes out with at least some idea that they're more convinced of than any other idea. And it usually becomes clear in this lesson that there needs to be some further discussion because if you look on the right-hand side of the blackboard there, you'll see that in this class, when the teacher at the beginning of the whole class discussion has said, all right, let's just get out some ideas as to what this probability might be, we've got three different answers. Um, we've got an answer of 100%, which is essentially when the teacher probes to get the argument for it. It's the folk... Um, inheritance idea that, well, both the parents have one little e and one big E, so children take after their parents, don't they? If both their parents are the same, it's absolutely certain that the child is going to take after the parents. You know, that's one form of reasoning. The one-third and the 50% are based on different views about the likelihood of combinations of genes, one from the mother, one from the father, the one-third is based on the idea that there are three equally likely combinations. The 50% idea is based on the idea that actually if you look at the, where the uh, allele comes from, it matters. And in fact, one of the apparent co combinations occurs twice as frequently. So there's a lot there to build on in terms of having a mathematical scientific discussion in the lesson. And the teacher's job is to conduct that in a way that doesn't just go round and round, but actually makes some intellectual progress over the course of that part of the lesson so that um, ideas are getting developed, refined, expressed more clearly and hopefully filtered so that the more wild and woolly ones are, are dropping away and the ones that are perhaps closer to the conventional mathematical scientific view are being shared. However, it has to be said that this is very challenging because it goes against quite a lot of the reflexes that we've, many of us you know, have built up as teachers over uh, the years. Um, you know, the, the idea that you should allow students to go on arguing um, an idea that you know to be misconceived and misguided and indeed <laughs> let another student come in and try and challenge them with another idea that, that, that may be misconceived or, or, or misguided, it's quite a leap of faith and it certainly goes against a lot of the habits that have been built up not to correct that um, straight away. Um, it's also quite challenging uh, in terms of the knowledge that the teacher needs. Anna and I were talking about the knowledge that teachers need before we came in, because what this puts a premium on is the teacher's capacity to make sense of what students are saying and to perhaps revoice that in a way which helps other people in the room make more sense of it. And that actually, you know, is, is a quite subtle skill which calls for very confident knowledge, not just of the subject matter, but of alternative ways of thinking about the subject matter, at least the capacity to make sense of them. So for all the reasons and many more, uh, those that I've put up on, on, on the list, 
developing as a dialogic, developing dialogic teaching is not straightforward. And um, during the initial work that we did with, with five schools, it was relatively easy for the researchers to uh, discuss lessons with, with teachers. And because the teachers got together um, and could talk about lessons, there was a lot more support for teachers um, in terms of developing their thinking about dialogic teaching and sharing their experiences and the, the, you know, their strategies for actually uh, moving to this kind of teaching. As you'll see, um, or as you can imagine, it was much more challenging when we moved to doing this on a larger scale with only those two days of professional development um, for teachers and with perhaps limited opportunity for teachers within their own school to visit each other's classes and to provide mutual, mutual support. So let me now tell you a little bit about the, the field trial. So we'd worked with five schools and they'd been extremely helpful in um, developing the epistemic intervention. And indeed, um, there was quite a lot of staff turnover in those schools, but in most of them, they continued to, uh, to use it. And indeed, the kind of issue in those schools, which um, we followed up to some degree, was actually how to spread this so that it was shared by the whole department rather than just by a couple of teachers in each department who'd been involved in the, in the project. But what we wanted to do in the field trial was to test out the business of jump-starting this with new schools who hadn't been involved in the development work, realising that this was more of a developmental challenge. And so we um, designed the field trial, an experimental study, randomised at the school level, intervention and control groups consisting of intact classes. What could be simpler or more straightforward? <laughs> um, well, I can... I can tell you that, you know, attractive as it looks, you can actually, the easy bit is the randomising at the school level. Um, the devil is in the detail of what comes um, after that, particularly when you're working with year seven classes, um, you're conducting an intervention that takes place over the full school year, you're trying to train the teachers in advance, but you find that many schools um, don't actually decide who's going to teach year seven until um, the beginning of the autumn term, and um, indeed, you find that um, you know, schools have you know, sudden staff shortages which um, throw any plans you've tried to make in advance. Um, so conducting a randomised trial was interesting, and we, we did our best um, with it. And I think what we can say is the bits that weren't random were entirely fortuitous and outside the control of the researchers. So any suggestion that there was a researcher bias involved in this, I think, you know, would not be right. But there may have been other processes, you know, operating, which meant that um, things which we might like to have been randomised weren't. And we decided that we'd make judgments about the effectiveness of the intervention in terms of the learning gained by pupils. And to do that, we, we used proficiency tests um, by pupil reaction to the teaching they received on a topic, and we did that with an opinion questionnaire, and the dispositional change in pupils over the course of the school year, and we did that with an attitude questionnaire. And we also gathered other evidence um, through classroom observation and teacher questionnaires, some of which I'll mention um, in passing. So... This was on a relatively large scale. We originally had 13 intervention and 13 control schools, but 
um, at the start of the, the term, one intervention school pulled out because they simply didn't have any, hardly any staff left. Um, so we ended up with 12 intervention and 13 control schools. <clears throat> and what that meant was that between 24 and 29 classes um, featured in each subject or topic, um, as we'll see. What were the results? Again, to keep it very, very simple, um, the, across the four modules that we looked at, the four topic modules, the overall pupil learning gain, the mean effect size was plus 0.07, which is, you know, next negligible. <laughs> it's on the right side of negligible, but that's about, you know, the, the, the most encouraging thing you can say about it. Because as you can see, the confidence interval um, spans zero, so we can't actually say that this is significantly different from um, you know, what would have happened if they had just been uh, being taught in the usual way, which of course was what was happening in the control group. Oh, I ought to have said also that the, the way we did this was that all schools um, got the training. It was just a matter of whether they got it before the field trial or after. And in that way, what we tried to make sure was that we were recruiting similar schools and, and teachers for the two conditions. You know, what we wanted was that um, schools and teachers that were similarly, you know, favourably disposed, I guess, towards this kind of teaching approach. Um, however, there were some differences between the modules. Um, unfortunately, it turned out that our electricity module was um, not as effective as we would have liked it to have been. Um, the forces module, just about everything that could complicate the analysis went wrong. So although I could put some numbers up there, um, they would be accompanied by such a string of compounding and complexifying factors that we'd reach the point where actually interpreting the numbers would be very difficult and therefore it's probably better not to put the, the numbers up there. However, with the other two modules, I think the numbers are reasonably um, reliable. You can see that these are very modest um, effect sizes, which in one case just about steer clear of the zero point, but in the other case don't. So again, we can't really make a strong claim about the relative effectiveness of this intervention. And it's no better in terms of the opinion or the attitude of the students. Um, um, we've not quite finished the analysis on, on, on the opinion, but it, it pretty strongly looks as if there's no effect for any module, and there certainly isn't on the attitude. Now, what you could say is that teachers using this intervention, unlike the teachers, uh, you know, the, the, the situation they were in before, they can now say that they have a teaching approach proven to be as effective as what's going on in other schools. <laughs> and we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't, uh, you know, sort of neglect that, but perhaps it wasn't, you know, what we were hoping for when we, when we embarked on, on, on this study. Um, so that's the evaluation of the intervention itself. What do we know about dialogic teaching from our investigation? We didn't have a lot of resource to, to spend on this, so what we did was a single lesson observation in our intervention classes only. And we asked the module developers to identify lessons where they'd expect there to be dialogic activity. We observed six classes for each module, and that meant that 24 out of the 28 intervention classes were, obs were observed at some point. What we did was the observation was based on markers of dialogic talk. Um, 
really under five heads. So if you think about it as a kind of progressive development. So to have dialogic talk, for it to be interactive and to involve the students, you've got to have solicitation of pupil ideas by the teacher. In response to that, you have to have some articulation of ideas by pupils to, to, to get dialogic. You want there to be a multiplicity of pupil ideas, not just one idea uh, about each point. You also might hope that the teacher would spotlight particular pupil ideas to encourage deeper discussion of those. And then lastly, you might expect to see some comparison of different ideas produced by different students. And this was digested down from a much longer list, essentially on pragmatic grounds, of what could be made a reliable uh, observational instrument where we weren't working from videos, but we were doing it live in classrooms. And the main observation was done by one researcher who trained herself up in this and, and got quite proficient in it. So what did we find about dialogic talk? So... As you might expect, there was a reasonably high incidence of teachers soliciting and pupils articulating for all of the topic modules. There was less um, attention to multiple pupil ideas and less teacher spotlighting of uh, pupil ideas, but there was some of it across all of the topic modules. The rarest markers were those concerned with the comparison of ideas. Um, highest in the probability module a bit less in the fractions, ratio and proportions module and not at all in the science modules. And in fact, the pattern overall was such that generally the levels of most of these were lower in the science lessons than in the, the maths lessons. So that at least gave us an idea of you know, whether what we might regard as dialogic teaching had been gone on in the places that we expected uh, it to be going on. So we were able to look at um, whether there was any association between, if you like, the, uh, an index of dialogic teaching that we developed and the relative effectiveness of the teaching in, in that class. And what we found was that there was no relationship in the science lessons. And one might speculate that was because the level of dialogic teaching didn't really get very high. But there was a relationship for both modules in mathematics. And again, one might speculate that that came through because there was some of the more developed and deep uh, dialogic teaching in both of those topics. But this is pretty speculative. Um, it's only six lessons uh, in relation to each module. The instrument's a kind of relatively unproven one, so we can't be confident about that. But it's a kind of interesting and promising area for, for further research. So, what can we say, first of all, about the episteme intervention? Well, as I've said, you can have different kinds of reactions to <laughs> the findings of the evaluation. You can say it's pretty disappointing, given the time and effort to implement the intervention. On the other hand, you could be a glass-half-full person, saying it's encouraging. It indicates that the intervention can be taken on without experiencing implementation tip. I mean, we know that when teachers take on challenging um, new things, uh, well, not just teachers, when anybody takes on challenging new things in their work, it would be surprising if immediately they were able to perform at the same level as they had been 
previously. Um, you could push that a bit further, and you could say optimistically that as the teachers got more familiar and proficient with the intervention, it might be expected to become more effective. On the other hand, you could say, hang on, <laughs> maybe that lack of implementation dip is not so much that the teachers are assimilating, are, are, are sort of developing the intervention, they're assimilating it to their established practice. And I think from what we know, um, both of those processes were taking place uh, across the field trial. In some cases, really, yes, teachers were assimilating the materials to their established practice. But in other cases, teachers were, um, we think, developing their teaching um, along the new lines. So making it more effective, obviously the module that produced a negative effect needs modifications. Equally, the modules that didn't generate the deep levels of dialogic activity, they need to strengthen the scaffolding they provide in this respect. However, it'd be possible, we think, to use even now a reduced intervention just based on the maths modules because you could expect that to produce a modest overall rise in student learning um, as well as providing an initial basis for developing staff expertise in the dialogic teaching. And in particular, bearing in mind our interest in, in realistic forms of professional development, this would make in-school support and coaching more realistic in that once you've developed some successful practice in a school, it becomes much more viable to draw on that expertise to, to, to help colleagues. However, having said that, one of the things we did notice over the course of this project was the high degrees of sort of mobility and instability in the staffing of lower secondary mathematics and science. Um, for example, to give you an example, I started working on the maths modules we had um, of the order of 10 teachers. And by the end of the first year, only two of those were still teaching year seven uh, mathematics in the school. Um, you know, for a whole variety of, uh, you know, of reasons. But what it adds up to is a very high degree of staff uh, instability. And in some ways, the experience of running this project um, made me feel that this kind of research would be useful if we had a more stable staffing situation in schools. But actually, the key thing that could be done to improve maths and science teaching in the early secondary school would be get more staffing stability in. Because what must it do to students when they first go to secondary school you know, to have a succession of ever-changing teachers and teaching in those subjects? Uh, it can't be beneficial for students' confidence um, in those areas. Uh, in terms of advancing the research field, we think that the study contributes by having tried to take a systematic large-scale evaluation um, and tried to you know, measure that and use those kinds of research approaches. Because a great deal of the research in this area is very small-scale, qualitative. What you get um, are very interesting episodes plucked from lessons which illustrate interesting debates and dialogues between students. But you don't get any sense of whether this is typical and in particular of how to make it more typical of what goes on in lessons. So we think there is a place for the kind of research that we've done, which is trying to look across the whole piece and trying to measure and quantify so that you get a, a realistic view of the challenges 
of developing teaching in this kind of way and how successful it is. We also know that we are not the only people to have been disappointed um, by trying to make this kind of pedagogical development. Um, a team at King's um, had a project not quite the same about developing argumentation in secondary science. And the approach they took was they had two lead teachers from a number of schools who went on a um, fairly... It was, I think it was a sort of perhaps a sort of nine-day training programme over a couple of years and who were tasked with spreading that to their colleagues and sharing resources and so on. And again, the findings for that were disappointing. Um, effectively, it made no difference. Um, I think that the, the, you know, they also looked at attainment and uh, attitude. So I think what both of these illustrate is you know, the challenge, actually, of taking what the research literature um, suggests are successful and effective teaching approaches when they're carried out in sort of small-scale, carefully managed studies and translating those into much larger-scale practice. And indeed, the common issue that we identified, um, both the King's team and ourselves, is the need for more sustained and intensive professional development. That also feeds back in an interesting way into the literature because the only one of the meta-analyses that looked that took account of this important, crucial, I think, variable of, of professional development was the Bob Slavin studies, where the um, instructional improvement programs that he evaluated were all ones which included substantial um, amounts of teacher development. So in other words, uh, in that meta-analysis, it wasn't enough for a study, for example, of cooperative group work simply to go out and find schools where teachers said we're doing cooperative group work. Mm -hmm. He insisted that to be inclusive, included in the study, those teachers must have gone through you know, a programme that developed their use of cooperative group work in a substantial way. And so I think that's, that, that, that's interesting and it lends strength to this argument that perhaps the fundamental issue is that King's talked about doing a minimalistic professional development. We talked about doing a realistic professional development. Um, I think what it indicates is a very, very crucial thing is that perhaps we still in this country don't take seriously and have enough institutional commitment to really thoroughgoing professional development for our maths and science teachers. And that, combined with the instability of staffing, um, you know, is maybe the fundamental meta-problem that needs to be tackled if we're going to improve maths and science teaching. So sort of getting back to where I started, which was, you know, the 50 years of research, maybe the 50 years of research is valuable, but, um, you know, actually putting it into action depends on conditions um, in schools being such that actually having that more sophisticated knowledge is able to make a, is to make a difference. And if you don't have the baseline conditions... Um, whereby you know, teachers can develop their practice um, along those lines, that's difficult. Having said that, however, it ought equally to be said, is that perhaps it's nothing to do with professional development. Perhaps these ideas about developing argumentation in science or about dialogic teaching are all very well for a small number of very committed teachers who are able to develop successful practice in doing them, but are not suited to becoming much more mainstream and widely disseminated. Um, that's certainly another interpretation you could make 
of the epistemic study and of the King study that I've referred to. Um, so we have to, I think, leave that you know, as one of the topics for discussion. I've just about managed to um, finish at uh, 10.2. Um, I hope I've given you the, the nuts and bolts of you know, the epistemic study and that there is enough there that we'll find something interesting to uh, follow through and talk about in discussion.